0: The big questions are, how do business owners like us spending our own money, time, and effort, how do we grow our business and jump the line? That lets us accelerate the delivery of our products and services while being smart about our growth, profits, culture, and still increase value in our business. Those are the questions, and this podcast will share some of the answers. My name is Bob Rourke, and today's guest is Mark Woodbury. He's a managing director of Raincatcher. Mark, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Bob. Appreciate you having me on.
0: This is awesome. I appreciate your time. So, yeah. tell us a little bit about you and what got you from there to here.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So, my background was in finance. And as I mentioned to you briefly, worked in finance as my first job out of school and always had, I think, an itch for a little bit more independence, less rigidity than I was currently having. And this was my first job out of school. So, there's, I think supposed to be some rigidity and you have to earn your stripes a little bit. So, I learned a ton. And I liked what I was doing and itch to go towards self-employment. And they say, uh, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention, meaning if you want to start a business and you don't have any money, you better figure out how to start a business with no money. Um, and so for me, that was learning the digital space. It was a very low barrier to entry to do business online, to build websites as a service. At that point, start a website, get into e-commerce, very low customer acquisition costs, So that's what I did. I dabbled around online and and figured things out the hard way. Initially, I taught myself a lot of hard lessons, stumbled and fell a number of times, but this was nights and weekends for a while and ended up having some success. Really, I think maybe at the right place at the right time, I think that was an easier time to get into e-commerce. It's much more competitive today. Uh, There's a lot of software that has decreased the barrier to entry even further. So there's probably 10, 20 times as many merchants online today competing for the same ad space as there was 15 years ago when I got into it. But I got in and got my feet wet into self-employment, learned the hard way about having to keep your own books, quarterly estimated taxes, learned that lesson the hard way. So plenty of stumbles as no doubt seen with yourself or potentially your clients. And so learned that the hard way. And ultimately ended up selling that and got into, I didn't know what my next venture would be until I sold that company. And throughout the sales process, that's when I learned, okay, this is what I want to do. I'd done consulting at other firms before. Do I want to do consulting in e-commerce. Do I want to do consulting for some supply chain logistics? Yeah, it didn't really ring a bell, but then when I sold my company, I realized, okay, this is what this person does. They just understand the m process, know who all the key players are. And it's a lucrative space to be, I think it provides value. It's fun. It's very goal oriented. I'm not just racking up hours on somebody else's bill. In fact, I'm working for free most of the time until I close something. And so that's how I got into the business brokerage space. Started at my own company with a partner. We had a couple of employees after three years. And then I split off and he went to work with his wife on her business. And fortunately, a few months later, I met the folks at Raincatcher, which is the firm you're familiar with and the group I'm at now. And it's been a great transition. It's been, I still have all the flexibility. Somebody sets their own schedule and I run my own division but I also have the scale of a large company that has processes and who has already made many of the same mistakes that I was currently making. And so I've learned a lot of the lessons the hard way, and now I don't have to learn them the hard way. Um, I'm part of a much larger organization. So you know, we're an Inc. 5000 company. We're one of the larger business brokerage companies in the US. You, know,
0: you were talking about your e-commerce company. So niche um, did you finally land on?
1: <laughs> yeah. So we ended up drop shipping equipment. This is in the days when you could just any this is still done today, but to a lesser extent, which is you make a sell and then you turn around and buy that product from the supplier, the manufacturer. So we used equipment. We used primarily woodworking equipment, but we had metalworking and we had desks and tables as well. And we kind of branched out this is before Wayfair and before house. So there was some furniture element to it, but we also had equipment. This is before the major equipment dealers had a large online footprint. And so myself and my partner at the time, had just figured out online marketing before many of the major companies with larger budgets than us had. We sold primarily equipment online.
0: I think about trying to match up what you learned in college in your first job with what you ended up doing. What did your degree prepare you to do as far as it goes with this business? (laughs) That's a good
1: question. I learned the basics of accounting. I learned that relationships really matter. That always rang true. I don't know if that's necessarily coursework, but that was my life experience that taught me that. I learned the basics of finance, of business management. We scratched the surface of sales and marketing, but a lot of it is just on-the-job experience. My best lessons have come from stumbling and falling, or I've sidestepped uh, maybe some mistakes by observing what other people have done and by surrounding myself with people smarter than myself and people who have done it before me. I think that's just how I've gravitated towards learning as opposed to textbook per se.
0: And so you went from an employee at an an investment firm, digital marketing space, built a company. Yeah. Got it to the point where somebody wanted to purchase it from you. So you went through the entire transaction journey. Yeah. And then your next step, you were in what? M&A in the digital space as well?
1: Yeah. I had a couple side projects at various times. Some that went well, some that didn't, but with a friend who sold basically scrubbing brushes on the end of drills and we Uh sold them on Amazon. And so that was really his business that I supported. At this point, I lived in Los Angeles. I took a consulting role at 20th Century Fox. So I've seen behind the hood of the Fortune 100s and how they operate. I'm much happier in a small business environment, I'll say. That was a fun role just to be around that type of corporate environment had to go to work in a 36-story tower on their Fox Plaza every day. So that was fun. That was a, probably an eight-month. It was supposed to be, I think, a six-month gig. It lasted, I think, eight or 10. One project that just kept on dragging on and problem carries on. And so yeah, I had a number of different ventures in that time, but before I got into ultimately brokerage, I had the itch to be self-employed the whole time again, but maybe not the masochist of learning all the same problems over again. Didn't really want to get back into e-commerce and navigate the supply chain. And so I thought M&A and, and being a broker would be a good space. And it was, but I had plenty of problems that I had still yet to solve and had maybe a slow start in the brokerage space. <laughs> For my first few listings, when I thought I knew what I was doing, it turned out that maybe I didn't know so much, Bob. <laughs> this is a lot harder than I, I thought it was going to be. And maybe the buyers don't just come flocking to each deal that I have. So that was an issue and didn't have a great amount of success my first year in that business. It took a while to start getting some closes under the belt. And that learning curve, sure enough, flattened out like it does in any other career and started to get a pretty good
0: hold of it. I think about how you grow up as a kid and you go and you hear about people that take a job or get into a profession and then they stay there their entire lives. And then you think about the folks that take your route. And if you had kids, you go, how do you encourage your kids to be an entrepreneur? What did yeah. your parents do? to foster or point you toward this direction
1: yeah that's a good question because they think i'm crazy for going this direction the most steady careers as you can imagine so my dad worked for the government he worked for social security administration that's he took a job with them when he got out of college and then took any promotion he could get he worked in, in guam take a promotion with him moved to los angeles and that's how he and my mom met she was a financial analyst in the social security administration so they both work for the government which is as steady as, as it gets. Meanwhile, their youngest doesn't want anything to do with a steady career and would rather learn things the hard way and do it himself. Yeah, I guess you could say I'm hard-headed, but it works for me.
0: had some kind of problem with the gene pool, maybe. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. It's funny. What is it? The Rich Dad, Poor Dad series. Yasaki talks about the quadrants and so on. And you think about the folks that are the employees, the professionals. And then you have the other group, the crazy group, that goes out in the entrepreneurial space and learns by failing forward. Mm -hmm. And for you, you have a varied career between finance M&A, actually building the company and selling the company and helping others and so on. When you're talking to a business owner in the SaaS space or online retail, whatever, what is it that you bring to the table that you think resonates with them when you're having the first conversation?
1: Yeah. I think I'm cut from the same cloth, that kind of wild entrepreneur that figured it out by trying cloth, as many of these people are, being as though I I was that guy. I had to figure it out. A lot of these people desire to have the freedom and flexibility that goes with running an online business. Some of these people transitioned on having a family. They chose to leave their job and they wanted to be able to work from home or they wanted to work and let their work in 60 hours a week as an engineer. And I'd rather work 20 as they buy a business or some people... Want to learn how to launch a business with low upfront costs they learn how to get into digital marketing or how to get into selling products on amazon so i think i'm cut from the same cloth as a lot of those folks and can relate to them i also have the benefit which many business brokers don't have of being focused on just one industry right so i just focus on the digitally native space being SaaS, e-commerce content media websites And I think because of that, I know many of the key players in the space. I've spoken at a couple of conferences in the industry. I know what moves the needle in terms of value with those types of businesses. I think people find that to be
0: valuable. For that business owner that's in the digital space, right, that's listening to this episode and they go, what are the value drivers and what kind of things do I need to make sure that I'm doing in my business? And so what kind of things do you talk to folks and advise them to do?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So I think the short of it is making your business as sellable as possible is, is to make it run without you. It's a business that you don't want to sell is the one that's most sellable, right? It's because there's a much larger pool of buyers who are looking to buy cash flowing asset than are looking to buy themselves a job. Like you and I spoke about it before the podcast, Bob, there's, there's millions of businesses out there that make $100,000, $200,000 a year, but they require an owner to step in and operate them oftentimes work 30, 40, 50-hour weeks, which can be done, those can be sold, but the ones that are sellable at a higher price are ones that have management in place, have operating procedures, and have more or less navigated or grown through the phase where it's reliant on the owner as the
0: operator. I think about the difference between a job and a business. And for you, when you're talking to the various potential clients that come in and contact you, if you could characterize Do you think that those business owners recognize the difference between having a job and having a business? Or is that something that's forced on them in the sales process?
1: That's a good point. Most don't, I'll say. Most people, especially I think in the digital space with the clients I work with, it's them. It's they're the artist and this is their artwork that they're selling. They don't realize oftentimes how reliant on them it is. We kind of counsel them up and say, this needs to be an operating procedure. Somebody else needs to be able to step in and operate this. But I'll say that that some have learned the work-life balance and have learned the importance of delegating, even that if that means a couple errors are made while a new person is broken into a position, it doesn't have to be perfect. What needs to happen is these people need to learn, and and you need to build a management team underneath you, uh, and to be able to step out and be work on your business instead of in it. That's the minority in my my view of of small business owners who understand that. But as they get larger and that becomes a necessity, I think. That's when owners become more more just owners as opposed to owner operators
0: the things that strike me is i think about the various business owners and we all come out with some kind of formal education typically and the formal education usually has absolutely nothing to do with what we're doing i'm right. pretty good that organic chemistry took me out of med school and no. so went through the army went through intel and now i'm in the finance space and you go know, well those don't match up at all as these business owners are out there searching for resources when you were running your business, was there a pivotal book, resource, mastermind group or influencer that helped you get ready to sell your business?
1: That's a good question. Was there one that helped me get ready to sell my business? I'd say no. I wish that resource was available to me in terms of exit prep. Right? There's a lot of brokers out there that, are, that We say we're there for the fireworks. We're there when you want to sell. We sign you on as a client. We sell the business and it's off our books. I'd say it had I come across Raincatcher or a firm like Raincatcher that has an exit prep part of the business or a business coaching part of the business, somebody who to teach you how to keep better financials, somebody to teach you how to delegate and build standard operating procedures in your business or how to price your product and service. A lot of people don't, they're pricing too low. They don't realize it. There's price sensitivity. You can increase your price by 20% and only lose 2% of your customers, but potentially, I'd say the management consulting or business coaching aspect has been missing for a lot of brokerage firms. That's something we incorporate at Ring Catcher that I think is very valuable. So I kind of went in blind. <laughs> you know, Knowing what I know now, I would have done a lot of things differently. I still would have sold because it was very reliant on both myself, and my partner at that time, and it had served the needs that uh, we wanted it to serve, which is get us out of, of working our nine to fives. We turned from a night and weekend job into a full-time job and we moved on to what's next. But in hindsight being what it is, we were not very well prepared to sell uh, and therefore probably didn't get as much out of the exit as we would have liked.
0: I think about for the potential business owner that's attempting to sell or come and go, should, you know, I want to sell, should I sell, or I got an unsolicited offer, some combination of that, or I've got a health right. it is. And I think about the experience that you've had, this sort says, I may not be able to tell you exactly what to do, but I can damn sure tell you what not to do. Right. In the business space, do you think there's a greater recognition that the business owner needs to get company or needs to look at enterprise value or needs to look at the value drivers in their particular business? Do you think that's happening or is it still a vacuum?
1: There's been some polls about this, asking business owners, particular baby boomer business owners who are coming up the age now where many of them want to retire Many of them have wanted to retire for 10 years and are still unable to. How many of them have a legacy plan? How many of them know what their business is? is worth and the number is shockingly low and those polls i don't know what the sample size is but i can tell you from being boots on the ground and talking to these people it adds up because a lot of these people just don't know what their business is worth it's somebody at a conference told them one thing their friend sold for another and they try to put this together they think they're in a good position Oftentimes, it's pretty rare that somebody comes in and has an accurate understanding of A, what their business is worth, B, what the sales process entails. Are they selling stock or are they selling the assets of the business? Is it come with cash and working capital included or not? There's a number of caveats to it that people are just uninformed about until they get into the process. It would be nice if people started up to a decade, but at least 12 or 18 months before their planned exit. To prepare for selling if they rolled up their sleeves and did a little bit of work ahead of time we'll get more out of it when they do finally pull the trigger and sell
0: i've talked to other folks from Raincatcher, bird hunted yeah. with a number of them so some yeah. can sh- some can't but that's okay and the ones that can't we won't mention by name but you think about what Raincatcher tries to do when you have a business owner that shows up that's got a good business but it's just not ready to sell yet Mm-hmm. For the folks that are out there that may be in that boat, can you kind of walk us through what those steps look like?
1: Yeah, it's different for everybody. I'll say, I guess, broadly speaking, the steps to get ready to sell or to grow the business to the point where you can hire management and it runs without you. I'd say that's the number one thing that inhibits business owners from selling or inhibits them from being competitive buying process is it's still very reliant on the owner. That part of that is just the size of the business. If you run a small coffee shop, you as the owner, well, it's somewhat reliant on you to run. It's never going to be large enough to where you can have a full org chart underneath you and you step aside, at least not many coffee shops, right? So there's a market for small businesses out there where the owner is also the operator. But if you can get to a point where your business is large enough, where you can step back and hire somebody to run it, that person's been in that driver's seat for at least a year that's a far more sellable asset. Another one is, I'll say, keeping clean financials. Just CPA compiled financials, whether they're accrual cool basis or cash basis. It's just having clean books and records, keeping documentation, articles of organization, operating agreement, these seemingly small documents that you never think will come up. Well, when you go to sell the company, it's they're going to come up. They pick through things like that. Of course, they need to. So we try to help folks do that. One thing we've learned I'd say, I can't take credit for it. This has been Raincatcher's process since before I stepped in, but I learned it the hard way as well, is to really hold the seller's hand and do sell side due diligence, ask a lot of questions going into the process, really get them prepared for what the process is. If this means we spend five weeks working on the business, eight weeks working on the business before we market it, then so be it. Because otherwise, these issues are going to come up further down the road and we're going to have a fire drill looking for some documentation. Are trying to coach the seller up on what's gonna happen and how a transition service agreement works. So if we really hold their hand and have some genuine conversation with them a couple times a week while we're getting the business prepared to sell, our finding is that that makes for a much smoother process in close and in diligence. Also, if we can more authentically present what a picture of what that business is to the buyers. If we've already turned over all these stones and we already have answers to all these questions, well, we're doing the buyer's work for them, and that just makes it more appealing. Uh, so that's really part of what our job is, is to counsel the seller on the process, run a competitive process to get them the best economics.
0: You guys do a fairly uh, robust job of doing diagnosis with software as well, right? And your value builder application?
1: Yeah. So we use the value builder system. And so what we have, we're big believers in how that diagnoses the multiple facets of a business really move the needle on valuation. So if you have one supplier versus you have several, owner reliance, how many competitors there are, how long have you been in business, what the financials look like is a high margin business, a thin margin business. As you know, all these things really move the needle, whether you're evaluating a, a public company to invest your, your client's assets in, or whether this is a private equity group evaluating one of our client's businesses as a potential acquisition. Um, if we could show that this is a strong market position, is well-reviewed by by their customers, has a durable supply chain, product and service that is is well-liked by the end consumer, well, that's a far more desirable asset than if we're not able to prove any of that.
0: Do you think, as as you're out there and around, there's more than one type of buyer? Do you think that the business owners are well-versed in the range of types of buyers?
1: That's another good question. And unfortunately, the answer here again is no. We do see the occasional seller who knows... Hey, in my industry, we oftentimes sell to XYZ company. XYZ company, they're at all of our industry events or at such and such industry conference. And this group was there soliciting bids and another business owner I knew sold to them. That does happen. And they're able to cue us in or kind of point us in the right direction of who are going to be the potential buyers. But oftentimes they kind of come to us for that answer. As you know, these small businesses be worth under a million dollars. It's they're really going to sell to another competitor in their same business model, typically in the same city, or an individual. You know, there's serial entrepreneurs who might build a business, sell it, go on and buy the next. Just look for multiple ventures at a time. There's some businesses that lend themselves to the owner-operator stepping out, gas stations, liquor stores. So not companies that I work with, it's the digital advisor, but those make good passive business assets as well. Some people own a portfolio of, right? So we find that I'd say no. 80% of these business owners. They might think they have an idea, but they really don't know who the end buyer is going to be. And then the larger businesses, one, three, five million plus in annual profit. Hey, we know private equity groups out there, or occasionally such and such private equity group has already shown interest. Should I take their offer? Or can we run a competitive process? We need some professional handholding to get the deal done. Also, can you get me some competitive bids? So they don't know the names of private equity groups, but they know you know there's an investment group, a family office, private equity firm out there that's gonna buy them.
0: I just think about the experiences of life, right? When's the last time you did something really well? The first and only time you did it. Yeah.
1: That's right. That's a great point. It's one of those things that most people only do once, right? It's we're selling a third generation family-owned business right now. This will be the only time it's been sold. It was started by a great grandfather, and you know, so other people start a business and it is their well-being and livelihood for 30 years and ended up selling it. I'll say that my niche is, is a bit the opposite in that way. And some of these digital entrepreneurs, they're kind of like me, they're onto the next thing. Uh, it was chatting new objects syndrome, right? <laughs> they started a product on Amazon and they got it to a certain point and it's no longer, are they jumping out of bed to work at it each day? So they sell that. Now they want to start a software business. Now they want to start a web development business. I think the younger generation gravitates towards doing that. We have trouble staying in one place for any period of time, but also I think the digital native space, you could scale a business more quickly through digital marketing than it used to be just word of mouth marketing or offer a service in a a local area, which took longer to reach this critical mass. So you're right. Most people only sell once.
0: The components of the sale as you're working with your customers, I don't know how much of an emotional sale event it was for you. But when you're working with this business owners, how do you take and try to pre-frame the emotional roller coaster of the sales process?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. For a lot of these people, it's their business is their baby. And it's probably understandable. <laughs> it's your business owner. I'm sure you get it. Most of these people, it's they raise their kids in the business. They might own the business, real estate. They service the community, their employees. And so oftentimes their customers are like family. So it's about finding the right fit buyer who's going to take care of them as well. And it is a very important step. And we find that trust is paramount in them making a decision who they're going to work with and for them being happy with the outcome. So we just don't push anybody. we just very, I think, upfront and honest about what the valuation is and back that up with the facts and figures that are at our disposal, as well as the experience that we have. And oftentimes just questions will arise. What does this look like? What does that look like? They've built it out around their vision. And it was time for somebody else to step in. That there's it's oftentimes they have questions about what that's gonna look like. Some of those we can answer. Some of them kind of have to wait until these offers come in, introduce them to the potential buyers and wait for there to be some dialogue there for the seller to either get comfortable or potentially not with, with who the new owner is.
0: I was thinking about when you sold your business early on, the likelihood of that being the biggest check you ever had in your hand is probably fairly high.
1: Well i tell you, when I was 25 years old and still had student debt, it's it gave me $200 or $200,000. It felt like a ton of money up until a few months earlier that year. But yeah, I never thought I would have needed more money than what I had at that point. Yeah, I was wrong, right. <laughs> clearly. It goes quickly, but
0: you're right. It, it, it kind of goes with the territory. You hear that 80% of the business owner's net worth is tied up in their business, right? And yeah. so they're petting and taking care of their family legacy and this, that, and the other. And there's that tipping point where the business goes through, the funds are wired in, or they get the check in their hand. What's your observation on talking to those folks the next day or yeah. the week after they close transaction?
1: Yeah. I think it sinks in usually a bit before then. It sinks in right when they start to get offers. You see that glimmer, that excitement, or that sometimes second guessing themselves. It's there's mixed emotions there but it's oftentimes just backed by a lot of excitement when they get indications of interest and ultimately sign away their business but you're right when the wire comes in it's just they're very grateful it's almost a weight off their shoulders oftentimes it's freeing. you see people who are still married to it and and want there to be want for continued success and try to help in any way possible they're still very tied to that business the customers the employees i'll say in the digital space again these people are already onto their next venture. Oftentimes, before they even sell, they've got another venture they're already ramping up and they're getting rid of this old one out with the old and with the new. Kind of like house flippers, these people who you know, buy a home, put 50 grand into it, it's back on the market. There's not much emotional attachment there. I think that happens more in the digital space than it would with somebody who runs a manufacturing
0: business for their whole career. I'm oftentimes struck by the businesses sold and there's that sobering moment where, you know, post-sale, where they feel like they have the need to do something with the funds.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. We try to bring a deal team together. Obviously, wealth managers like yourself, MA and attorneys, it's, it helps to have good advice all around and try to build a deal team. Oftentimes, they have a plan for what they're going to do. So these more traditional businesses, they're going to sell the business, sell the home, and they're moving somewhere and they're buying a house there. They're buying a beach house. They already have plans in their head, oftentimes, on what they're going to do. The serial entrepreneurs who, again, gravitate towards the digital space, they roll that money right into the next venture, usually. It's more about this addiction of building in the next business than it is about feeding a lifestyle, oftentimes.
0: To kind of model a call, so let's pretend that I'm some kind of digital firm. I've received an unsolicited offer for my company. Yep. And going like, I don't know if this is good, up, down, left, right. The advice is, okay, I want you to call Mark. And and so I call him and go, Mark, this is what I have going on. Walk me through kind of your process of talking to somebody that's got a potential offer for their company.
1: Yeah. You know, it's good that you bring that up because we have a client like that now. So these are conversations I've had a lot of recently. Oftentimes it's somebody who I don't know what it's worth. I don't know if this is a good offer or a bad offer. It's a lot of money, but is that the right amount? Am I leaving some money on the table? And then how do I sell it? Assuming I want to take this offer, what happens to my employees? What happens to my contracts? What do I need to do to sell it? That's a whole other conversation in of itself. There's a lot to be done, but typically we'll just counsel them on what is fair market value for the business. That starts with us gathering the financials, understanding their operations, how reliant on it, them it is, put them through, as you mentioned, the value builder assessments. We have some software to diagnose these companies. And we also just have some candid discussions about them, about how reliant on them it is, how long they've been running it, how clean are the financials, et cetera. And we'll say, okay, are you interested in taking such and such offer? And sometimes that happens. People come to us and they want to work with the people who have already made an offer. They just want some professional handholding to do so and to get the deal executed. Other times people say, hey, we have two or three interested parties. Can you run what we call a limited auction? Find these, call it three parties put a data room together for them and then share the business documents. And meanwhile, if it's a fit for these three companies, let's try to fill in with five or six more strategic buyers behind it who could you be a fit. You
0: data room. For the folks that don't know what that is, what's your data room? That's a good point. So the data room is just a
1: web hosted or a cloud hosted. We use software, specialty software around getting a data room, but many smaller brokerage firms just use Dropbox or Google Drive, something like that, where we grant access to buyers who have already proven that they're capable, shown interest, uh, signed a non-disclosure agreement, will grant them access to various data documents that are stored in that data room. So it's just a place to share financial statements, articles, of organization, an overview on the business and the org chart, the employees, et cetera. But really, it's a pretty expansive list of documents that go into it, especially with some of these larger companies. You know, we have some that are, are in diligence, legal diligence, and financial diligence for several months before they end up closing. So that data room
0: gets worn out. I think for a lot of folks, colonoscopy comes to mind when you do that kind <laughs> of process and yeah. doing your homework up front and or and or knowing that this is coming yeah. and normal. And then for you guys, so if you, let's say you have that particular company and they have maybe more than one bit, and the owner is going like, "I really don't know." What do you guys do to try to take in and create more value for them in the process?
1: Yeah, you know, that's a good question. We run, we have the benefit of uh, the critical mass and our scale having a large buyer Rolodex. I didn't have this much scale. I mentioned previously, I ran my own small firm. If we got an offer, great. I'm trying to massage it, trying to get them financing and trying to put a deal together. We're fortunate enough to work with some larger clients oftentimes, but even on the small deals, we can occasionally get a couple more offers so we'll typically have a marketing period. So once we prepare the business presentation documents, we have the recasted financials and what we call a SIM or confidential information memorandum, It's just a overview of the business and the industry. We'll go to market. and That's about a four to six week process on market and sharing on a confidential basis, the overview of this business and the parties who are interested and capable, they bind to non-disclosure and we share the data room with them, which we've mentioned. And then we'll ask for indications of interest, right? So that these people will put forward a formal document, non-binding at this point, but they'll put forward a formal document on the price. And they can give a price range at this point and terms that they suggest the transaction happen at. Do they want to buy the whole thing? Do they want to buy 70% of it and keep the seller in place for a period of time? How much cash, how much debt, how much equity is going into the transaction? And then maybe we'll get anywhere between three of those. And sometimes we got 17 for a business that one of my colleagues did. It's ultimately selling to a private equity-backed strategic, but we'll typically get a number of indications of interest. And then we'll discuss those with the seller, right? With our client, we represent, and we'll shortlist a handful, call it could be three, could be six, but we'll have discussions with them about where their offer comes in at, what the seller would like to see, what would make their offer more competitive. And then we'll have a two-week process where we're going to introduce the parties if they haven't already met. Typically, we'll do a meeting in person. So the buyers are going to fly out to wherever the business is, wherever the seller is, and we'll fly out there as well. And we mediate, typically meet over lunch, go over the business. If there's a facility, we walk through the facility and the buyers will ask any further questions. Oftentimes, this is going to be somewhat of a partnership moving forward for at least a period of time. This might be a prolonged transition where we don't just leave you the keys, but we're working with you for six months, 12 months post close. And we want to make sure that all parties are going to get along. So they all want to meet one another, make sure their investment's safe in each other's hands. So that process, you know, we'll do that with each of the selected parties who, who submitted an indication of interest. And then we'll ask for letters of intent, for the best and final offer. We'll give them guidance on the seller liked this about your offer, but they didn't like this. Can you maybe change that a little bit? And so then we have a letter of intent. And that outlines what the deal terms are going to be. And at that point, we'll move forward with one. The buyer and the seller are going to have to be in agreement on
0: pricing terms, and we'll move forward from there. In the world of earnouts, I don't think there's very many deals that go without an earnout somehow or another. And you could have an elevated offer with a bigger earnout and slightly less priced offer with a smaller earnout. Right. Do you find yourself in that negotiating saying, here's compare, contrast?
1: Oh yes, that's one of the caveats and you mentioned earlier, Bob, how much do these sellers know when they go in? Well, they know they want more and they know they want cash at close. And they just assume kind of like a house this is I get paid for the house, I leave the keys under the mat. Well, oftentimes there's a lot a number more variables that go into this. The buyers are going to ask you to stick around for a period of time. There might be a hold back or an earnout that's tied to you staying back or around the business's performance during that time. Some might have a lower percentage of cash paid at close, but your total compensation could be much higher. Some, especially private equity groups, they'll buy, say, 80% of your business, 90%. They want you to keep a piece so that you're continuing to assure the business success, although on a more limited working capacity ongoing. And then when they go to sell it again themselves in another four, five, six years, they're giving you a second bite at the apple because you still own 10% of that. So you you get a second exit down the road which a lot of sellers are very enticed by and like that. So yeah, there's a number of moving pieces to earn out. There's a hold back that often goes into these deals as well. You
0: know, it's it's funny. I think about, for you guys, one of the unique characteristics of the companies you guys have depth of field. The people on the team, you know, like uh, Marla's been a fractional CFO for hundreds of company. And you look at Cam, I, Bishop, don't, know how, yeah. at Cam Bishop, I don't know how many companies they've been through. We were talking about uh, Gary Wilford, in the franchise space. And I don't think that's common.
1: Yeah, you're right. I think we have the benefit of being a true team. I think a lot of companies say that we mean it in that if I had a question about franchises, which I would, I don't know the first thing about how to orchestrate or launching a franchise. Gary's got 20 years of experience in that. But what Gary doesn't know is anything about online marketing. He can mm-hmm. rely on me for that. I'm working with a colleague right now whose background is investment banking, and he did risk management at a big four accounting firm. He's another one of our managing directors. We're working a deal together that's an e-commerce business. I know the business very well, but I've never done a recap of $80 million digital company. Well, he has. So I think collectively, we're uniquely well-positioned to service a lot of companies. You mentioned Gary's expertise with franchises. We have the accounting background. Some folks on our team have manufacturing expertise from covering that at investment banks. Uh, Cam did leverage roll-ups for uh, KKR, which is obviously a huge private equity group, publicly traded. So, yeah, we have robust experience on our team. I'm humbled to be a part of it.
0: I think for the business owner that's going like, well, what makes you guys different, better? Why should I call? And my broad sense is that if you're the business owner listening to this and you're not sure, make the yeah. call. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the things I haven't noticed. If they want to find you, how do they reach out to find you on social media?
1: So you could just search Mark Woodbury, Raincatcher on LinkedIn. You'll be able to pull me up, find me on Facebook probably as well. Just Mark Woodbury. Welcome to add me. I've been fairly active on LinkedIn as of recent. Focus on your podcast. I've been on a handful previously, so I should try to stay very active in those communities. I've been part of a couple other professional networking groups as well. It's been great, but I think LinkedIn is probably the best way for these folks to get a hold of me. Or it's just mark.woodbury at Raincatcher.
0: The thing that strikes me is about, you know, we talk about the business owner that comes to you as ready or the business is ready to sell and goes to sell. Well, there's that other business owner that's not quite ready yet. Mm -hmm. And you guys have started trying to address this challenge or deficit in the marketplace. What do you guys do for that business owner that's maybe two or three years out from sell and needs some training or help?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. This is really a lot of credit to Marla. Our CEO, and as well as Jason, for having the foresight to not just be a transactional company, but to be these small business owners or mid sized business owners trusted corporate finance counsel. And so we have a coaching arm of our business. And we're very fortunate to have Susan Fru, who's local in the Denver area as well, to run our business coaching team. And she has a whole roster of coaches under her with expertise in various fields. A colleague of mine who's an expert in the Amazon space. Scott Margolis, I introduced him. So he's doing work with Susan and helping these business owners plan for exit, other folks with expertise in finance, in team building and marketing. We try to help these business owners shore up whatever part of their business is lacking. Instead of just putting it on the business now and selling it for whatever it gets, let's help you shore up this soft flank your business. You've run this for 25 years. Let's, you can make this 30%, 40% more valuable. Mm-hmm. If you work with us for another year, year and a half. Most of the time, people are going to want to make that investment and put off retirement. And now we're going to get an extra 30% for our business by making it more sellable, by putting an extra strategy in place, by cleaning up our books, cleaning up our financials. So that's what Susan and her coaching team are great at. So we're major advocates of not just selling your business to retire and investing with a wealth manager, but in prepping for that process ahead of time.
0: Given all the changes in the tax structure that may or may not be coming, depending on whatever picking up an extra 30 or 40% sales yeah. value. So what you thought you were gonna grow, you will net by the yeah. price and yes. you know, knows, that's a benefit. And the folks that I hang around with you to know, go, the standard comment, you have to have good financials. Well, you yeah, should be taller, but at the same time, do you understand your financials? Do you know where the value drivers are? Are you pulling the right levers? Do you have client concentration risk? A lot of the things that are normal vocabulary for you, for a lot yeah. of the business owners, you go, Do I really want to take a low margin, big client order? Or would I really rather have diversified orders from multiples? And that's an interesting question to bring up with you guys.
1: Sure. No, that's right. If you have one supplier relationship, well, that's great. And that supplier has always been able to deliver for you. But if you have a backup plan, because it can't just go to zero if the supplier shuts down tomorrow which we've seen during COVID, unfortunately.
0: change do we? No,
1: none. No, no, that's for for sure. Everybody's getting product right when they expect. Another one is service companies. And you're a service business. We see accounting CPA firms. I've worked with digital marketing agencies in the past and I'm fortunate to work with, hoping to onboard one here in the next week or two. It's the businesses that have personal relationships with their clients. Ideally, you get to scale where you have a team. You have some people under you who you can have responsible for the majority of that relationship. They can still know you. They can still come to your company parties, but they're, ideally their account manager or their point of contact will be an employee and they'll have a sales rep. These are not just the owner's relationships. So that makes it far more difficult to sell if these clients are sticky. So I forget the question. I'm dovetailing again. into another aspect that makes these companies sellable.
0: You know, the thing that strikes me about all of this I'm a fan of business owners. I wouldn't have the podcast. I wouldn't own business myself. Fascinated by the courage and gumption that business owners have and how they decide to get in one thing or another. And yet at the same time, the deficit in what they know about value drivers, because having a business ready to sell, is just good business. I mean, you don't have to have it as an event at the end of your business to the time doing it. You part of the reason why we spend a fair amount of time with Raincatcher, is one I know the principles real well. I think what Raincatcher brings to the table is a business owner-centric ethos. And it's not just saying that, it's just watching what you guys do.
1: Yeah, we certainly strive to be of service to the small business community. We have our tenants or our core values and that the business ownership is the American dream. And we're here to, to service that community and those folks. So we work almost exclusively with entrepreneur or family-owned companies whether first generation or second generation and those we consider ourselves oftentimes to be kind of their protectors when they step into the world of private equity groups and corporate finance people who know more about the m&a process than they do so we think of ourselves as as service to that community when they go for what will in all likelihood be by far the largest transaction of their life and they capture that value that took them three generations to build
0: which is back to the comment early on, when's the last time you did something really good the first time you did it? (laughs) That's
1: right. Yeah, I I almost wish everybody failed at selling their first business. A lemonade stand right off the bat so they can (laughs) understand the process that goes into it and come seek
0: counsel the second time. Yeah, nothing like getting beat up in route to take and give you some perspective.
1: That's right, that's right. And we do see from some people who try to sell the business themselves or try to work with oftentimes some inexperienced advisory groups, who may come back to us six months or a year later. We never fully count those out when they try to do it themselves because there's a lot of questions that are going to come up that, well, we're here to answer them when they do.
0: To kind of bring this to a close, you guys have, for the business owner that's trying to get just a general idea, you have a link on your website where they can take and go through the value builder process, correct?
1: Yeah. So we have that value builder software, which for folks who are interested on where their business stands today, it's completely free to use. They can go in and test out on these various eight value drivers. How does your business score? And if you were to make some adjustments, what would an increase in your business's sellability score, what would that manifest itself as in terms of a sale price? How much more money would you be able to get if you were able to tighten up your accounting, if you were able to get a second supplier in place and limit that concentration, et cetera. So I think it's fun for a lot of these business owners. And we talked about many of them are not prepared. I find that the ones who really dove into this process early and really take a liking for it, those are the ones who are really going to have a successful exit three, five, 10 years down the road, people who are preparing with this in mind. I spoke to a woman at a conference a week or so ago who was reading up all about it. She bought every book she could find about exit planning, and she had a bunch of very well-informed questions. And my thought was, my goodness, this is going to be a good one. And we're staying in touch with her. This is going to be a juicy one. This is a very sellable deal because she knows what she's doing.
0: The thing that strikes me is, you know, some days you come into work, and for the folks that are in snow country, it's like having your brights on at night in a snowstorm. You can't <laughs> yeah. put the snow on the windshield, you know? Right. And with that kind of thing in place, you can start to prioritize effort. Yeah, and, and that's you point. You know measure um, improvement down that road, and, you know, it's small percentages here and there really add up over a short period of time.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it's an adjustment for a lot of business owners to make to start delegating or change from just knowing their business and having it all locked away in their brain to actually documenting the operating procedures. But that's what makes the business transferable
0: ultimately. Well, Mark, I'll tell you, this has been a joy. I really yeah. appreciate your perspective and insights into the digital SaaS space yeah. and the fact that you've been around the track and building and selling a business and working in the, the industry has been, uh, I think, a real plus. So I really appreciate your time. And again, for the folks that are looking to find you, they can find you at Mark Woodbury, and you're on LinkedIn. You're also at Raincatcher, Mark Woodbury.
1: That's right. Feel Mark. free to reach out. Bob, I appreciate you having me on.
0: Absolutely. It's been a joy. Thanks for the lessons. Appreciate it. Yeah.
1: Hopefully it helps.
0: All right, sir. Take care. You,
1: sir. Yep.